people started just like betting on me and giving me the space and the opportunity to do things and nine out of ten times I would fail but every once in a while like I would do something that would be really big so I think people were okay with it and also I embraced failure like publicly and open like, what do you I mean think, publicly no, for example even closing down the plant shop you know like that was a, a moment of there was a lot of success around that business, but there was a layer of, this was supposed to be a thing that I did for the community and it kind of took its own life, but I don't have the capacity to manage this anymore because I need to focus on this other company that I have right now. And you know, in many ways that wasn't necessarily a failure. I learned a lot from doing that business, but you know, I failed. Mi gente, dímelo, dímelo, what's good? Welcome to another episode of the Quintueras podcast brought to you by Plural. You already know it's your boy Pavel bringing you another very special episode with another very special guest. As a quick reminder on this show, the mission is to redefine professionalism. So every week we have a different guest join us for a very candid conversation around the conflict that they've experienced between professionalism and authenticity. Speaking of guests, this week's guest is mag rodriguez and if you're watching this on youtube you'll notice that i had the pleasure of catching up with mag in person we shot this week's episode at milk and pull it's a coffee shop which has multiple locations in brooklyn on top of the delicious food and coffee it's also owned by two dope people joe and angela who were nice enough to let us record at their coffee shop so if you need somewhere to work or just get a coffee and eat, support this Black and Latina-owned business. Now, back to our guest. Did you know that there are only a couple hundred either Black or Latino founders that have ever raised over $2 million in funding? MAG is one of them. MAG is the founder of EVEN. It's a creative platform that enables artists to sell their music directly to fans. He founded the platform last year to help black and brown artists retain equity in their creative work. So imagine your favorite artist is about to launch their project that they've been working on and you actually get access to it weeks before. It's a way for fans to connect directly with their favorite artists, but also an opportunity for the artists to take a bit more control over their monetization strategy compared to streaming, which is often criticized for not giving artists a quality cut of the revenue. Anyway, we get into a bunch of topics in this dope conversation, including being from the Midwest, his experience in the music industry, what his parents did for a living growing up, and how all of that has impacted his ability to take calculated risks these days. Anyway, now that you know a little bit more about our guest, let's get into this dope conversation that you're not going to want to miss. All right, so before we get into like the stuff that you're doing now, right? Yeah. Let's take it back to, you said Los Angeles. Yeah. Tell me about where you grew up in LA. So I didn't grow up in LA actually. I lived in LA for a year. So I moved to LA June of last year and I was there through July of this year. And then I moved here July 1st. So where'd you grow up? I grew up in Milwaukee. So I'm originally from Milwaukee. Yeah. Oh, we had this conversation yeah. that we got a bunch of like people coming out there. Yeah, so I, I lived in Milwaukee most of my life. Well, I was, so I was born in Milwaukee. As soon as I was born, my parents decided to move to Mexico. So we moved back to Mexico, where they're from. So I lived in Mexico until I was six. So we moved here the end of 99, back to the States. 
So yeah, like Spanish was my first language. I grew up in this village of maybe 80 people for the first six years of my life. And then, yeah, we moved to Milwaukee. Well, actually, we first moved to San Antonio. We're there for a little bit because my dad has family there. And then we moved back to Milwaukee. In a village of 80 people? What was that? You said a village of 80 people? A 80 people, yeah. That's tiny. Yeah, it was a tiny village. It's like, it's still to this day, my grandparents still live there. It's like tiny. Very much like everyone knows each other. I mean, I just remember, my only memories were like growing up, it wasn't like a farm, but it was like we had, my grandfather had like cows and just like cattle as a whole. We had chickens. So I remember getting up in the morning and grabbing fresh eggs and getting fresh milk and, you know, like all of those pieces. And then I would bike, go to bike for K4. I was there for K4 and K5, so I would bike there to the kindergarten, which was like, I don't know, like a quarter mile away from where I lived. And every, all the kids in the village went to school at the same time. So everything from K4 to like eighth grade, everyone went to the same. We're all in one room. Probably the size of this room, honestly. So it, it felt, I mean, it sounds like a very, like, a, you know, simple times. And it's good that everyone knows each other in the neighborhood, but it's also probably like a, yo, everybody knows everybody. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I was too young to see any of the drama. Sure, it really sure. wasn't like any of that. It was very much, it was just literally a very simple lifestyle. Like my mom, she would go into the bigger village close to the city, which is, or close to the, she would go to the bigger town close to the village that we were from uh, every day. And like for her work, she used to sell sandwiches, like food to the uh, high school or like the, what we would consider a high school and like the workers. So it's like a plaza and that's where she would like just sell food. So that's what she was known for. And then my dad will help her with that. I can't really remember what my dad did though when we lived there, but for work, yeah, I can't remember what he did for work. I want to say it was probably some form of like welding. So he's a welder, so he's still a welder to this day. So he's probably what he was doing somewhere. So when they got to the States, did they pick up similar work? Did they do similar things? No, so, well, my dad worked three jobs when we first moved back. And then my mom was working one job. So when we first moved here, my, my dad was working during the day, he was a welder. And then he was a delivery driver. So he would go to work at 4 a.m., work to 2 p.m., and then he'll do delivery for a Domino's from 3 to 7. And then he would do maintenance at McDonald's from 8 p.m. to like midnight. So he had two part-time jobs and one full-time job. And then my mom was a, a worked at a McDonald's as well. So my mom worked at a McDonald's for, I don't know, maybe 10 years. So she ended up like managing a couple restaurants in Milwaukee. And then in 2010, she started a cleaning business. She started her own cleaning business, yeah. So my mom was a manager at a McDonald's, but she, they used to move her around all the McDonald's because when it came for like inspection, she was like the goat for it. So they would have her moving around. So her main job was like, she would go to a McDonald's right before an inspection. They managed like 12 McDonald's and she would make sure that they would pass the inspection. So that was kind of her role within the org. And through that, she started cleaning the houses and the offices for like the executives of the McDonald's of that like specific franchise. And then from there she had, I think she started off and had five clients and then six months into it had 14. So she couldn't do both. So she ended up quitting at McDonald's. And then now her business, she has eight to 10 employees. They clean, I think she's like up to 130 different, like between 
residential and uh, commercial. So, yeah, she built like she built this like massive business for herself in the last 13 years, which has been like great for her. Yeah, I mean, I think it was like my, well, both my parents were very entrepreneurial, even growing up. Like when I remember, like, well, my mom had her own, I mean, her selling food was like a part of her business. And then at one point they owned a corner store. They're called Abarrotes in, in Mexico. So it's just like a little deli corner store. In theory, it was great. They just got finessed by the person who sold it to them. They bought it with everything, but it turned out that everything was like falling apart. So it was just, it was a bad time for that. So that ended up, that was like a very short lived thing. And then they would always come up with ideas. I grew up seeing them, what should we do? Should we do this? Should we do that? And my parents were just, I think they were just natural survivors. And it, it kind of led to this hustle mentality of like, how can we figure it out? And, you know, I started working when I was 11 for a different cleaning company, actually. One of my mom's friends would clean. It was a very light job, but it was like... A... You working for the competition? <laughs> but it was like me cleaning. It was like hallways of this apartment, so I would just vacuum. It was a summer job. I never worked directly for my mom, but she then got me a job at the same McDonald's that she was working at uh, when I was 14. So I worked at McDonald's from the ages 14 and 19. And I'm sorry, 14 to 18. And that was really my only job I've ever had up until I started working at the venture firm when I was 24. So yeah, I worked at the venture, but be between the ages of 18 to 24, I was just kind of like out on my own, managing artists at a recording studio and just kind of like out and about. I mean, I think really it, it was, in eighth grade, I, I got drawn into music. So one of my, a distant uncle, he's like my dad's like distant cousin, won a Grammy for, he was like a, his name is El Güero, Isubanda Centenario. It's like a Mexican regional band. And he won a Grammy and he won two Grammys, two Latin Grammys. And like he had blown up and it was really cool to just see that from a distance of, oh snap, there's this like guy making music and he's kind of gone all the way. It was a figure that was within the family. But I think it, when I was in eighth grade, I was just like, oh, I'm kind of interested in this thing. So I was always, my parents didn't have much growing up, but we never had nothing. And one of the priorities for my parents, actually my dad's idea is we had a computer in the house since I was like 10 years old. It wasn't like anything crazy, but like we had a computer back in the dial-up days and yeah, I remember. being able to explore the internet and, you know, I was pirating software and making CDs and I was like, I got immersed into this world of the internet really early. So I remember I was like, I was like summer right before eighth grade. I was like, how do you make music? I remember just Googling it and make music. I wanted to like actually record music. So I found Audacity, which was like a software to like audio. Um, 
downloaded it and I started like recording myself with a, a computer microphone that we had with the webcam because my mom used to do Skype calls with my grandparents in Mexico. So we had a little computer microphone. So I used to like, I was recording with that and I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And then it turned into like making beats and then went to high school. Mostly like I wanted to record, but I didn't know anyone who wanted to make music. So I just recorded. I think I made like 16 different versions to like the Umsprung instrumental, uh, which was like the big record at the time. And yo, any crazy how much Skype fell off? Like Skype could have been Zoom. Skype could have been Zoom. You know what's crazy? Skype is still a thing yeah. in Asia. Pretty heavy. Interesting. And Latin America, actually. Interesting. Um, but they could have been WhatsApp. They could have been so many things. They could have been so many things. But, but I yeah. mean, they had their moment. I think. Oh, yeah. I, I want to say they got bought out. I think they were Microsoft. exited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a. But I'm saying the, the pandemic Zoom moment. Zoom is yeah. a verb. Skype could have been that. I mean, I can see Google, what is it? No, not Google, Microsoft Teams. Maybe that's why they bought it to implement that. But yeah, I mean, as far as the career, I went into high school and it went from, I started recording a bunch of my classmates and then two of them turned out to be really incredible artists. And we did that all of high school. One of them signed to Capitol Records our senior year. And you were representing them at the yeah, time? Yeah, I was just like producer, kind of manager and then the so our senior year he like signed so he moved to memphis and i was still in high school so like i couldn't go anywhere but the other kid or classmate i should say his name was ishtar he was two years younger than me i ended up managing him while as soon as i graduated i had the opportunity to go to college or manage him and i was like i'm gonna do this and it kind of took off so then we were on the road Wait, for so you didn't decide to go to college i didn't go to college no no why hold up you got to tell me about the thought process, but also the conversation that you probably had with your family. Yeah, I mean, man, it's, it's <laughs> crazy because my sister... Because that's like the American dream, right? Yeah. You get here, you go to college, you get the degree, you know what I mean? Yeah. So to give you context, my sister's a doctor at Harvard now. So she's a year older than me. She set the bar low, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was... She was like 4.5 GPA. Oh, my God. 30 SAT score like yeah. she just full she had a full ride and I got a full ride to go play soccer in oh, Milwaukee nice. but it was like I think in that moment for me was like what am I more passionate about and honestly I didn't even think twice of it it's like in the moment it was like I believe in this kid I'd rather do this and what the irony of it all is he ended up going to college for a semester while I was managing him because his parents were not playing they're like you got to go to college yeah Most and I was probably, yeah. You know, on the side, I was managing him. and But, yeah, like, straight out of high school, we went on tour with Schoolboy Q and then Absol. And then went on, we went to Europe with Post Malone. So it was like, this is now, this is 2014 to 2016. And then 20, end of 2016, I mean, those two years were, like, really the peak of it. And then 2017, actually, he decided he, we were on the road with they. They're like a R&B group. And... He got picked up for a movie. Well, on the road, Ish decided that he wanted to, the artist that I was managing wanted to become an actor. And I was like, all right, cool, let's try it. Let's do it. And I started putting some feelers out on the internet. And literally, one week later, we get a script for a Matthew McConaughey film. He ended up co-starring in the film. It's called White Boy Rick. And we filmed that the summer of 2017. And... For him in that moment, it was like... It's a big deal. It was a big deal. He was about to be 21, and he was like, I have this successful music career. I 
now have this film. And, our, and that's when Matthew McConaughey, because he did some movies early in his career, yeah. but this is like post-True Detective. Yeah. He this, was doing a lot of, yeah. This was like, this is, I mean, at, I would want to say peak because he's still very much there, but it was a big film. And yeah, I mean, that, during that moment, we, he told me, he was like, yo, man, I don't know if I want to make music anymore. And I was like, all right. I was like, cool. Well, at that moment, I think for me, it was like, I already had my hands in so many other things where I was like, well, look, if you change your mind, let me know. We already haven't made music for a year because we we're doing this film. And then that's around the time I met the venture firm. So I stopped working with him January of 2018, met the venture firm in April, started working with them in May. Wait, before we get into the yeah. venture firm, it's interesting. He's 21, right? 21 at the time. Yeah. He's 21 at the time. You were how old? 23 at the time. Now, is it typical for a 23-year-old to be, like, representing artists? I don't know. Like, I'm just imagining you yeah. pitching for certain opportunities, whatever, and then yeah. people expect a certain person to show up. Oh, I mean, I mean, that was a big part of it. It's like, behind the email, you don't know who you're talking to. And we would show up, and they'll be like, oh, you're Mag. And it would be like two kids just showing up to rooms. And... Honestly, when he decided he wanted to be an actor... What, were the, what was those interactions? Like, people were surprised walking into it? Well, on the music side, not so much. I think in the music side where there's, like, a, a youthful spirit where, like, people love young men... Well, people love when artists are young because it's, oh, your trajectory is so high. And that was a big part of the appeal, right? The potential. Right? Yeah, it's, it's like kind of like a young. draft pick. Yeah, exactly. On the manager side... It's either a hit or miss. It's either that's just your friend who's managing you right, or, right, right. oh, that guy has a long, it's very similar because like a manager has hundred career, like a hundred types of career paths. An artist really has one. So a lot of people took a lot of liking from me very early, including some of my mentors who are like, Max Smart, he gets it. I didn't realize it at the time, but what ended up happening was a lot of the relationships that I thought I had because of the artists I was managing were really my relationships. So when I stopped working with him, my immediate thought was like, are these people not going to quit me anymore because I'm not, you know, working with this artist anymore. There's a little self-doubt yeah. that started to creep in. But, I mean, in, in theory now, a lot of these people that I was working with back then ended up being like massive executives in the industry who are still my relationships. Was that intimidating, though, at a young age? Because these executives are seasoned, they're older. You, you're you're kind of telling them, hey, you should do this and that. Meanwhile, you're like, who the f am I telling them? Like, they should be telling me what, you know what I mean? There's a little insecurity I mean, problem. to be honest with you, no. I, I think the insecurities, I think, or the self-doubt didn't really kick in until, like, my mid-20s. When I was young, I think, especially during that time, Confidence and arrogance kind of like fuel most of the decision making. Where did you get that from though? And honestly, I think it was just like, we just thought we were hot, honestly. And it was easier to make a decision. I'm really good at decision making now, but like when I was 21, 22, all my decision making was like, do I with you, do I like you? And I just happened to get really lucky that the decisions I made were the right ones, but I would only do business with people back then, whether or not I thought they were good people. And at 21, 22, it was definitely my arrogant side of being young and just think I'm hot. But now that I'm older, it's some, it is a principle that I keep to myself. Where like, I only want to do business with people who do good business and are good people at their core. 
and again, it was just luck. I just got lucky in that moment where there was a lot of people that I met who rubbed off like the wrong way with me. And I didn't think twice. I didn't even, I, I, at no point, because I think when you're 21, 22, at least in my experience, it wasn't like, what can this person do for me? A lot of it in that moment to me was like, if you're treating us a certain way, that means you just want something out of us. So like, I'm good. You know, now I know that the real differentiator is just like, are you a good person? Do you do good business? Are you, are you going to treat us correctly? Do you treat people around you correctly? Um, what are some things that you rub you the wrong way in some of those conversations? I remember just, I think one of the, I'm trying to think, actually, so we got blown out really early by this major label and this like high level executive. Ish was 17, I was 19 the first time we got flown out by a label. And Bro, that's wild for 19. Which was crazy, 17. yeah. And I remember going out there and, you know, in the moment it felt weird because it was like, we would go to a room and they would make me sit in the corner and they'll make the artist sit in the center of the room and talk to these people. And that was my first time experiencing that where I'm just like, I'm just going to do as I'm told. Now I would never let someone treat someone like a client of mine in that way because it was intimidating right i remember walking out of that room and just not feeling okay with that so you think they put you at a distance to intimidate you or i think it definitely it's like we're in charge right and not only to me but also to the artists right and then an hour after that they take us out to a lunch and they're like well let's do this deal right let's sign this deal you know yeah it was just like pressure and I remember making a joke. I was like, look, man, I'm down to do a deal, but you got to offer me a job as an A&R because in my mind, I want to be an A&R. And the guy like was like drinking water and just spits it out laughing. That's a copy ass. Yeah, it was just like a, I think for me, it was definitely like, it was definitely an arrogant thing to ask for. But in my mind, it was like, let's, if you believe in what we're doing, you know, give us an opportunity, right? In hindsight, it turned out to be a great opportunity, but I didn't like the way that they treated us throughout that moment. It felt like a lot of belittling. We know more than you. And they probably did know more than us. And I think the other side of it is like now also looking back at it, they offered us a really bad deal. Horrible terms. It would have been a horrible experience for the artist long term. And, you know, I think for me, those are like, again, that's just kind of how I moved when I was younger. It was... Some of those pieces I still try to keep to, like, I try to remind myself about, but hopefully that makes sense. Well, it's interesting, this idea of age and experience, though, because, yes, they may know more than you, or they may have more experience than you, but even with technology, things are changing so quickly. Just because you knew how to, let's say, sell records 20 years ago, doesn't mean you know how to do that now, right? So I may have more experience in this as a millennial in two years than you do when you're 20 in certain areas. But in that moment though, right? Like when you feel belittled, I feel like we have two options, right? We can say, you know what? Let me play cool. Let me not speak up for myself. Let me, do, let me not do any of these because when I'm 19, this person may know the other exec and, and then they might just send a mass email to the Illuminati of execs and I may never get a shot. Or you stand up for yourself and you're just like, but that's like a very, that's a difficult decision. Because the rest of your career is on the line, right? Did you have some of those thought process? Well, I mean, we didn't, we weren't disrespectful. I think, you know, 
we were raised right. I think that's what I'm shout out to my parents. But like in that moment, we just it wasn't even now we're good. We don't want to do business with you. It's just it's still really early. We need a little bit of moment to like fully grasp. I remember they offered us the deal and I remember my immediate response to them was like, this is the first deal I've ever seen. So we're still finishing a project. Give us six months to see where we're at in six months. Give me some time to educate myself. And I think I gave, they allowed me to move in grace in that moment where like we maintained the relationship with them. And in those six months, you know, things went from zero to a hundred and we were in a completely different position with more leverage. And I remember that executive that had flown us out. I, you know, he's now a relationship I still have in the industry. Remember, I think it was like, they flew us out in July of 2013. And in March of 2014, during South by Southwest, that executive saw the show. And at that moment, it's like, Ishtar's having a moment. He pulls me aside after the show and he was like, yo, man, you guys really pulled that off. It's really exciting to see. So there was a level of, you know, they allowed us to move with grace. And I think that's what it's really come down to. But I think really what I was trying to say when I was younger, it was easy for me to say no than it was now. I think now I have to like really think through decisions. But back then I just followed my gut and just like my immediate instinct was like, should we do this? Should we not do this? And Sometimes I was wrong, but a lot of times we were right just by following our gut, which I do think is easier to do when you're younger than you're older. Because, like, I think when you're older, it's, it's, it's harder to move. I think as you start getting closer to 30, and I'm saying this because I'm turning 29 this year, but for me, as I'm starting to get closer yeah, what, to 30. What are you trying to say about 30-year-olds? No, but... I'm not saying anything, but I'm thinking of psychologically, I think it, it, there's this, this piece of when you're 20, it feels like you have the whole life ahead of you. When now, when I'm like 28, 29, it doesn't feel the same way anymore. Even though I'm still super young. Yeah, it's just a feeling. That, it's yeah, just yeah, the yeah. internal feeling. And honestly, I think a lot of it has to do with just the whole like prefrontal cortex now fully developing before you're 25. I think you're more prone to take risks when you're younger. And those are some of the pieces that I do miss of just like being able to jump. And, and not that I don't take risks now, but they're more calculated risks now than when I was in my early 20s. Sometimes I feel like I made it, and it's a bad feeling because, and I'm not, no, look, the feeling feels good, but I want to feel like I'm back in the projects. Like the hunger that I had to make it is what I wish I had now. And sometimes I got to put myself back in that mindset, literally just by visiting my mom, because she still lives there. But I, I know what you mean. Like you get more comfortable, you get less risky. And this is, this is coming from me that doesn't have a, a wife or kids. I don't have any major responsibilities outside of paying rent, you know what I mean? But yeah, it's really interesting. I think it's fascinating too that your career started in this area of music representation. And it's very different than probably a lot of your peers that you grew up with that were going down this like corporate route. <laughs> and to most people, I wonder if they looked at you, it was like, I don't know. It's just, you probably see these TV shows about like what work is supposed to look like and then you have a very different view of it. Was it difficult to explain people like what you were doing? No, I think, I mean, it's, I don't, I think I never had to explain what I did to people. I think I would never put myself in that situation of having to be on family, right? Like to this day, you ask my mom what I do, she wouldn't be able to tell you what I do at all. Yeah, I mean, 
I think people for the most part like around me have known I work in music. But like I, I, but the best example is I opened up a plant shop separately in Milwaukee during the pandemic. And we actually just closed the plant shop last in July of this year. But it was like a massive success in Milwaukee. And I remember this is probably the smallest thing that I have ever done in my life. But it was the biggest thing for my mom because she saw me on Telemundo. We, had, we did this interview with Telemundo and I remember mom pulling me aside. She was like crying. She's I'm so proud of you. And I'm like, I don't make no money off of this. You know that, right? But it was a big deal in Milwaukee. It was like a, a moment. I think people, I think since I was pretty young, people have offered me the space to just do what I want to do. Um, because I wouldn't ask anyone for anything. Right. Like I never asked my parents for money because they didn't have any money. I would work, make my own money, like I'll hustle on the side to make sure that I could do the things that I want to do. So it offered me like this piece of people know that I would when I would do something, especially in a very smaller community like Milwaukee. Like I think in the early days, there was some friction. But as I started to get especially after the whole managing a couple artists and being successful on that side, people started just like betting on me and giving me the space and the opportunity to do things and nine out of ten times I would fail but every once in a while like I would do something that would be really big um, so I think people were okay with it and also I embraced failure like publicly and openly like, what do you I mean think, publicly and openly? for example even closing down the plant shop you know like that was a, a moment of there was a lot of success around that business, but there was a layer of this was supposed to be a thing that I did for the community and it kind of took its own life. But I don't have the capacity to manage this anymore because I need to focus on this other company that I have right now. And, you know, in many ways, that wasn't necessarily a failure. I learned a lot from doing that business. But, you know, I failed. I had a screen printing business that failed. It was very successful for a while. And then my me and my partner just had my business partner at the time had some friction and it just didn't make sense for us that well the business didn't fail that business is still running to this day I'm just not a part of it anymore but being able to be like I was a part of this thing but I was not the right person for that business and being able to like admit that and remove myself from that business has that always been easy for you yeah I think I can make it decisions like that I don't like prolonging things you know Faster, you, faster you can admit that, the faster you can move on. To yeah, so it's been just a lot of that. Where it's, I mean, even when I was working at the venture fund, we had a music program that was very successful that I led, and it was in numerous markets and it was expanding. But it got to the point where I'm like, this is no longer serving me. I want to do something else, and I know what I want to do. And the company offered me the space to do it, but I went from a really nice salary plus making a ton of money from other stuff in Milwaukee to like, I'm gonna get up and move to LA and try to build this company and you know just taking that massive risk and then it paid off right like over the span of seven months it ended up being the best decision that I made so it was like you know that even in its own it felt internally as a failure walking away from a product that I built that was so successful to go and build something else that I feel like it's going to serve me a little bit more has offered me that opportunity of just like Moving with the things that offer me internal grace. Hopefully that makes sense. It does, and I definitely want to get into some of the stuff that you're building now. Before before we get into that though, like within the music industry or when you worked into when you went into the venture capital fund, was there a point in your career where you didn't feel comfortable being yourself? 
Oh, 100 percent. I mean, I think. I mean, I think I had never worked a job since McDonald's. Right, right. When I started working there, and what was interesting was, I remember during my interview, I didn't even realize it was an interview because I had never interviewed for a job before. So they had me put together a presentation of me and my experiences, and I put a whole deck together. I remember going in there and just talking about what I was building. I'm sorry, not what I was building, but what I had done, my network, etc. And then they started asking me questions, and I was like, well, hold on. I'm like, who are y'all? Y'all just had me talk about me for 20 minutes. Who are you guys? Tell me about you guys. And they were, like, so confused. A room full of white people just looking at me like, who does this kid think he is? And... You know, we ended up, you know, they ended up telling me about themselves and I had done research on them and I was checking them on stuff that they had said in the past just to get a better understanding of what they meant. And I think they really appreciated that. So they set up a second interview and that's when I found out that, oh, I'm actually interviewing for a job. But yeah, I mean, I think going into that ecosystem, it was like I had never worked for a company before it was a very white company yeah i was one of very few people of color i dress different i talk different how did you dress differently like i dress now like a t-shirt and some jeans first and some sneak the work well no so it's crazy the <laughs> during the interviews i i wore the, i would dress how i dress but then after i got hired i remember going and getting some flannels and some khakis and I still joke around with them to this day but I remember wearing them the first couple of days and them looking at me like I didn't expect you to wear that and I was like I remember going home and just having I, honestly that first month I felt so much imposter syndrome because I'm just like I didn't feel like myself and I just remember having a conversation with one of the partners at the company about it and she was like Mag, we didn't hire you because of what you wear, what you do. We hired you because of who you are and what you know. So wow. don't feel like you have to change yourself to, you know, appease us, you know. Or make us feel more comfortable. Or make us feel more comfortable. Be you and just be you. And That's really comforting, though. Oh, 100%. Like, um, I'm imagining, like, what if she didn't tell you that? Or what if no one told you that and gave you that validation? You probably would have kept doing it. Because who told you to buy the flannel? No one. I remember. I remember right. Google. Like I remember just like looking it up. What do you wear at a tech company? I remember <laughs> Look looking that up. it up. Yeah. And I remember seeing some stuff, and I was like, "All right, flannels and some khakis." I'm like, "All right, cool." I wore khakis. I wore them in high school. I went to a private school, so like I had to wear khakis and a blue polo for school. So I went and got some polos, some flannels. I looked at. I used to look at my manager like a mannequin. I was like, "Whatever he wore," and it wasn't just about the flannel. It was about like how he wore the flannel. Did he tuck it in? Did he wear the what color belt? Like all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, hundred percent. Did you yeah. did you start hide your tattoos as well? The, no, those were always open. No, I, I had. No, I had all my tattoos. Actually, I didn't have tattoos when I started working there. No, I didn't start. I didn't get start getting tattoos till I was twenty five. So I was already there for almost two years when I started getting tattoos. Got you. But you also said like how you speak. Yeah. What was different? What was different about that? I mean, I never changed the way that I speak. But I've definitely developed like a white people voice, like my white people voice internally. No, I think there's like a hybrid, right, where I think it's just all about the room that I'm in. And honestly, a lot of times it's really to offer comfort to the people that I'm in the room with. A lot of a little I do think there's like a level of and it's something I talk about all the time where it's I do think in our own communities, we shame ourselves for the way that sometimes some people talk. 
But it was interesting how the barista was talking about how the whole Gary Vee thing, right? And I do think that does set a bad precedent for the reality of what people of color face in this world in general. Because Gary Vee can go to a conference and start cussing and talking crazy. And he just looks like a cool white guy. And as much as we can go on a stage and talk and say whatever we want to say, unless it's necessary, like, I don't think it's really, I don't think we have to force it. One of the things that I, I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. I think Dame Dash has been Gary Vee before Gary Vee was Gary Vee. But there's a reason why, and there's a lot of Gary Vee's, but I think Dame Dash has been talking about the safe that he says, but ain't no way that they're going to put him in the public spot. I mean, he can make his own public spotlight, but I'm saying like, there's a reason I think that Gary Vee is like up at the top. And to your point, it's like kind of what he looks like too. I, I think, I say that to say though, that I think, I also think Gary Vee has done a good job at creating a platform for people of color. And I think he understands that. I do think that's who he really is in real life. Um, but yeah, he's, he's good at what he does, but he's also created a space where it's, I, I always, I remember sending this video to a friend who's like, raving about Gary Vee, and I've been on Gary Vee for a minute, like I'm a fan of his stuff. Um, and I remember sending a video, I think, I can't remember who he was talking, he was talking to some rapper on a thing. And the way that the rapper was talking to Gary was like, almost like his white people voice. You know, he was still talking like, trying to keep quote unquote professional. But yeah, I mean, I think- It made, it made you think of yourself? It didn't make me think about myself, but I think about just more so the construct that's also created in this space. Like, for example, if I'm talking to a venture firm that I know has made great investments, they do great things, great business, I match however they're talking to me. I'm not going to talk to them the same way that I'm going to talk to a friend, right? The same way when I talk to my parents. Like in Spanish, for example, if I'm talking to my mom in Spanish, I would never say tú. I would say usted, right? But if I'm talking to a friend, I'll be like tú, right? So it's just different mannerisms. The way that I talk to my mom is going to be different than I talk to you right so i i think we can't confuse that by the this idea of just be yourself you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. i do think there's levels to it i agree i mean i don't think it's a complete mesh but i think the closer that we get to minimizing the differences between our different personas if you want to call it i think that's like what really makes it healthy yeah so why do you why do you think we're like Venture capitalists, for example, do you think it's just like an added level of pressure in that exchange, in that relationship? Because I've had guests that say, for example, there's this woman, she's the founder of Agua Bonita. And she said that for a long time, she hid the fact that she was pregnant while she was raising funds, right? So, and she was blessed during the Zoom era where she didn't have to show that perspective, but yeah, I get it. I mean, I there's think for me, it's the, man, it's the wooden horse strategy for me. Is that like Trojan horse? Yeah, the Trojan oh, horse, okay. Okay. horse, whatever, yeah. I, I always get references wrong, but I'm glad you know what I meant. But in that whole idea of the Trojan horse, that's how I go into my strategy when it comes to doing anything. I know that there isn't a ton of people like me doing it, where using that example of that woman too, who's, who had to hide the fact that she was pregnant to raise money, that is a real thing, right? Because when you're mitigating risk, I can see why 
a traditionally white male space would be like, oh, a pregnant woman raising money, right? Well, and, and the reason was she said that, I think she tried to do it before, but the conversation quickly changed from how's the business doing to very personal, how are you gonna run this company while managing this personal experience? Yep, exactly. I mean, I think you mentioned it earlier where we're normally critiqued for our personality and not for our outcomes or our, our work, our performance. So I think going into any room, you have to understand that people are gonna judge, right? Whether they're gonna admit to it now or not is out of our control. So we have to go in there assuming that the expectation, when I get in front of a VC, I look like a Latino who has a t-shirt on, who works in the music industry. Do I wanna give this person money, right? And with me going into that, I already know more about the situation than the other person next to me. But on the, going back to the original idea of the Trojan horse, for me, it's like, the responsibility is bigger to guarantee the success so I can use this as an opportunity so other people who look like me can do this. That woman who was pregnant raising money, um, she gets the funds, she builds an incredible company. She can turn around and tell her story and be like, as a woman, I had a baby and I built a company and it was not better than X, Y, and Z. I think it offers that opportunity. And I think that's been my go-to. I understand the pressure of, there's only been 150 Latinos who've raised over 2 million in venture capital. And I'm one of those 150. That to me, it's like a pressure that like, it's a big deal. So for me, it's, I have to make sure that I kill it because if I don't do well, I'll be an example of why you don't invest in people who look like him. And if I succeed, I'll be an example of why we should be, you know, so. That to me is the pressure that I feel. So, you know, the way that I talk to, I'm not gonna change who I am, but I am gonna, definitely gonna change up my tone a little bit, you know, when I talk to them and- I understand. Yeah, I, I understand. mean- and, You're not alone in that. I'm not trying to push you in one direction, yeah. more so it's, it's just an interesting conversation and thought process that said, what continues to inspire you to be your most authentic self in, yep. in some of these spaces and continue growing and self-discovery and all those kind of things? Yeah. I mean, I think for me now, it's been more of a, that's really the space that I want to create for my company, right? Like our company right now, for the most part, actually everyone is a person of color. It's Latino and black across the board. And, you know, for me, it's been a big part of what I'm doing with the company is how do I create a space where everyone can feel and be themselves with that layer of like accountability around, let's also understand what's around us, right? Being yourself doesn't have to be damaging to you. Like I just hired this guy who's an incredible sales artist relations person, but he'd be wilding on Twitter sometimes, wilding. So I just have to pull him aside and be like, look, man, you can wow, but do, instead of, you know, you can take that energy out on other things, you know, instead of just going on the internet and just literally just random wild stuff. Nothing like crazy, but it would just be moments where I'm just like, and he told me, bro, you know, the reason I have the network that I have and the things that I have is because of who I am. And I'm like, yeah, but you can do that in a positive way, you know? Um, and that guidance and feedback, you were more so trying to protect him. I was trying to protect a hundred. Bro, you about to get canceled out here. Let me help you out. I don't think it was ever at a point where like he would get canceled, but it was, he was trolling. He'd be trolling on the internet, you know, like that's literally what he'd be doing. And I was like, I don't want that to reflect with the company because I don't want people to look at the company. And then 
when they look at our company, one of our biggest, what I consider one of our biggest like superpowers or differentiators is when teams meet with our company, they feel comfortable because they see the company, especially working in music and working in technology, and it's nothing but people that look like them. It offers them it's a different, comfort. It's a different kind of conversation you yeah. have with people. They get to open up, they get to feel like they're at home. Uh, and it sets the standard, I think, that it's very possible, right? D, what is it, DEI or whatever? No, you know. Like, that's not a thing for y'all because it is the company. Exactly, of. but I think that's always been really interesting where we applaud white, own companies when they're good at DEI, but there's no trophy for me because I'm doing this because I, I don't go into my hiring process saying I only want to hire people of color. I hire based on who the best candidates are and the best candidates have been people of color, which lets me, and there's no DEI strategy, right? If anything, one of the conversations that got brought up recently was like, we should be more intentional in hiring, you know, not PLC, which I didn't even realize it's a thing, you know, which I think is, I'm sure that's going to be a bigger conversation that starts in the next 20, 30 years, but. That could um, be a whole series. Hiring white people. That could be a funny comedy sketch. <laughs> right. Because usually the opposite, but DI is typically to fix the problem. Fix the problem. Yeah. Mi gente was good. That wraps up another episode of the Quintuitas podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please do us a favor like share comment if you're listening to this on apple podcast spotify or any other podcasting platform please be sure to leave us a rating and a review it's only going to help ensure that these experiences get heard by as many people as possible because that's how we're going to redefine professionalism thank you see you next time